Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Electric Leftovers. This is episode 210. My name is Jason. How are you doing today? I hope you are having a fine time. I hope all of your uh, thoughts, dreams, things are going well. I don't, look, I just don't know. I'm tired. I just woke up. Leave me alone. Over at the website, since we last spoke, we have some new Vagrant story from me. We have Typing of the Dead Overkill from Scarlet. We have some Shovel Knight, a replay from me. And we have Gungrave, which was my monthly for February, which I just squeaked in before the deadline. And um, that's all the new stuff. Coolio's added a bunch of stuff, but that was all within the last time we spoke, so nothing to mention there. Uh, For soundtracks, we added Shadowgrounds. And the NES Shadowgate was fairly recent. We also have some new entries for the 365 days, of course. That uh, The most recent being Bob, Mega Man X, and Super Mario World 2. And I will let you know, it is my turn to pick the monthly for March. And uh, what I've decided, we're going to do something a little interesting. Games that have really cool box art, but are really bad games. And there's... There's a little homework required from everybody on this one, and, and, you know, I know I'm usually the one who's real picky about that, but you know what? This one is really not all that hard. Just go and look up games that have awesome box art, and then not all of them are going to be good, I promise. Any system, uh, any platform, any genre, just it's got to have really cool box art and be a really bad game. That all said... Let's uh, move on to our um, music for the day, week, show, thing. is a realistic table pinball simulation featuring tweaked VGA graphics. And that is the back of the box for Pinball Fantasies. It's one of them kind of arcade games for the PC, developed by Digital Illusions and Spidersoft, published by 21st Century Entertainment and Game Tech, and was released in 1994 and was a monthly for, wow, two years ago, March 2017. Coolio picked that one, and it was Pinball Games, I believe. I did this one, uh, just because, I guess, and I remember it looking pretty good, I remember it sounding pretty good, um, and that's about all I can tell you about it, it's pinball, it's not like there's a big plot going on, it's not, you know, espionage and intrigue, it's pinball. 
I was surprised that there were enough reviews of this game to actually do it. Um, and, well, people are, people are torn on this one. Um, so, there's some detailed and some quick. I'm going to do one quick, and I think I'll do another quick. There's a detailed that I really like. Um, I really like the name of, but I don't want it to be too long. Let's just look at it, I guess. Uh, yeah, that's pretty long. Never mind. So we'll start with this one. An excellent, innovative brawler. A Pirates of Dark Water review by Celereth. Uh, from, wow, 2000. Even if you've never seen the interesting cartoon Pirates of Darkwater makes for a stellar brawler. While no true arcade beat-em-ups remain in production today on the console systems, a plethora of them were developed for the Super Nintendo. Games like Final Fight, Knights of the Round, King of Dragons, Captain Commando, the list goes on. Pirates of Darkwater is probably not the best of the bunch, but also the most creative. Wait, is it or is it not? Gameplay, 10 out of 10. What? You can choose from three different characters. Ren, average. Eoz, strongest. And Tulla, or Tula, or whatever, fastest. Not much innovation in terms of ability differentiation, but then the game starts. Not only can the characters perform multiple combos while using the main attack, but they can charge, jump kick, and use a special attack that drains life, use a secondary attack, sword or dagger, block, grab an enemy, and proceed to knee them to death or throw them, thus knocking down other enemies, and do an air attack. All of this is done with the greatest of ease. You'll quickly find the button set up familiar after the first two minutes of gameplay. And the game itself, you ask? Awesome! If you're not having a blast just playing by yourself, invite a friend to join in for some co-op fun. Story 7 out of 10. The evil pilot, pilot, the evil pirate lord Bloth is trying to capture the seven treasures to control the all powerful dark water, and it's your job as the heroes to stop him. The story is far from epic, but it does create some neat backdrops for the battles, ranging from the cavernous dragon's maw to a town market. The game does a good job of varying the levels. Video and audio, 9 out of 10. The characters and backgrounds are crisply drawn and oftentimes spectacular in terms of detail. The animation is perhaps flawless with no noticeable slowdowns at any point during the game, even during the numerous Mode 7 effects. The music has a heavy metal sound that never really changes. However, the music is perfect to suit the varying creepy levels and does a good job of getting you into the mindset of beating the crud out of an endless supply of baddies. Replayability, 8 out of 10. Although the game only has a total of 8 levels, 1 compass and 7 treasures, the levels themselves are extremely large. You'll find yourself playing the game numerous times just to try out the 3 characters and notice the many details of perfection placed in the game. The idle enemies, uh, 2 background animations. The game really shines when you have a friend to help, especially if you try the hard mode. The game's not joking, it's hard. Even if you beat the game 20 times, you'll eventually come back to it just to take out some anger on those cleverly designed bad guys. Buy. B-U-I. In the present day and age of the new systems, you can find this game on eBay for less than 10 bucks. What are you waiting for? If you have an SNES and like brawlers, buy it. After all, it's the best in the genre. Okay, now we have to talk. The last sentence, after all, it's the best in the genre. The last sentence of the first paragraph, probably not the best of the bunch but also the most creative. So is it probably not the most creative? 
I don't know. The graphics are fine. The gameplay is fine. I mean, this is not a... He gave it a 5. 5 out of 5. Even though he gave it a 10, 7, 9, and 8 out of 10. Which is not equal to a 5 out of 5. Uh, it's... It's weird. It's just a weird review. Um, let's, let's move on to the other one before we, before we really talk. Uh, this one by Demonic Gerbil from 2006. Ugly, dissonant, and boring. Sunsoft dropped the ball. Pirates of Dark Water started life as a cartoon. It's a pretty good show, though it shows its age these days. Naturally, there was a video game tie-in, though it came a bit late in the show's life. And if you're reading these words, you found a review of the tie-in game made by Sunsoft. Purveyors of games from the original Spy Hunty, Spy Hunter and Blaster Master on the NES on up to Pachinko games for the PS2. Pirates of Darkwater is well, uh, excuse me. Pirates of Darkwater is made in the mold of such classics as Streets of Rage and Final Fight. It lacks the elegance of those classics and misses out on the interesting features from its contemporary, also from SumSoft, the death and return of Superman. As with all side-scrolling beat-em-ups, your character walks from one side of the screen to the other, beating up everything that gets in your way. Unfortunately, there's nothing new to see here. Final Fight came out on the SNES in 1991, and the game offers little new to stayed formula. Styad. Styad. Stayed. Stayed. You can punch, combo punches, jump attack, use a special attack, sprint, and attack, and that's about it. Difficulty is pretty low for the most part. A few of the bosses, like the Lugged Brothers and Bloth, the second time you fight them, are very difficult opponents, but the other bosses are fairly easy to defeat. The regular enemies are more annoying than hard to fight, and the AI itself is pretty brain dead. If there's a trap on the battlefield, you can easily lure the enemies into the trap, thus avoiding having to actually fight them yourself. There's little variety in enemies, even the palette swaps are not very numerous, the music is atrocious, and the sound effects are stock affairs with nothing special behind them. Now, for a quick scoring system for those of you keeping track of the numbers. Gameplay, 6. Boring but tried and true gameplay. Technically, there's nothing wrong with it, it's just not particularly inspiring to play. Graphics, 3. Remember the other guy gave it a 10? What is this, 1989? Get some people that can animate the sprites beyond 3 frames, and how about some additional sprites? And can we at least pick a less bleary color scheme? Total artistic failure here. Only the interesting character designs, totally not Sumsoft's territory, save the game from being the worst of its peers. Sound, 4. The music is terrible, but the sound effects are adequate to their purpose. Replay value, 1. After slogging through and beating this game once, I have no desire whatsoever to do it again. Other guy said you could play it 20 times. Other, not applicable. You know what they say about movie tie-in games? It applies here too. Overall, 4. It's worth a playthrough at least. If you find a cart for sale somewhere on the cheap, like five bucks, grab it. It's pretty fun for the first half hour or so, especially for a fan of the show. Just be warned that the novelty wears off pretty quickly. Gave it a two. And you know what? I agree with uh, Demonic Gerbil here. I liked the show a lot when I was a kid, which is why I bought the game. I found it, geez, probably 15, 16, 17 years ago. Uh, it was early 2000s, and I grabbed it, and I've never, I don't hate it, but I don't love it. Like, I could play it, I could play something else. Part of the problem is beat-em-ups for me get really boring really fast, and this one is really long. Uh, Scarlet and I played it if you didn't watch it. It was a little more fun with someone to play it with, but that's mostly just because I was making fun of Scarlet the whole time. It looks fine. It sounds fine. Everything about it is just fine. There's nothing good 
about it. I wouldn't give it a 2 like this guy did, and I wouldn't give it a 5 like the other guy did, but I'd probably give it a 2.5 or a 3. lead story in the news this week is awesome. Zen TV painter Bob Ross has been gone for 27 years, but his inspiration lives on, at least at Madison Middle School in Abilene, Texas. Abilene, Abilene, prettiest town that I ever seen. Uh, where on February 7th, student in Brandy Sloan's art class donned curly brown wigs, blue shirts, and paint palettes for a flash bob flash mob. Sloan's pre-advanced placement students were stressed about grades and projects, and she wanted to find a way to reward them, she told the Abilene Reporter News. The students used music stands as makeshift easels where they painted happy little trees and projected an episode of The Joy of Painting as parents memorialized the special day with photos and videos. True story, uh, you can follow Bob Ross on Twitch, where they will just stream old episodes throughout the course of the day. Every day. Amazing. Stories about hangry. Azaline, not Abilene, Azaline Branch, 29, was only defending her spot in a McDonald's drive through lane on February 18th when she stabbed another woman in the head. Fox News reported that Branch and the other woman were waiting at a Memphis restaurant when a physical fight broke out over their places in the line. Branch took out a knife and assaulted the alleged victim, resulting in injuries that were not life-threatening. Branch was tracked down by police and charged with aggravated assault. The Foreign Press. Valentine's Day is complicated in Japan. On February 14th, women traditionally give men chocolates, giri choco, or obligation chocolates, to their male colleagues and Honmei Choco, or True Feelings Chocolate, to their boyfriends or husbands. Men return the favor on White Day, which is March 14th. But according to Japan Today, Japanese women are rebelling against Giri Choco. 40% of workers see the custom as a form of power harassment, and some companies have banned the practice. Women find giving chocolates to associates stressful. Before the office ban, we had to worry about things like how much is appropriate to spend on each chocolate, and where we draw the line on who we give the chocolates to, said one worker. 
It's kind of like Valentine's cards in elementary school, says this guy. Host of a podcast. People different from us looking for a new home. A newly listed suburban Philadelphia home offers something a little sideways from your typical basement rumpus room. The five-bedroom, two-and-a-half-bath brick colonial. There we go. In Maple Glen has three fireplaces, a gourmet kitchen, and a sex basement. The finished lower levels includes a bed and a cage complete with straps, whips, and other accoutrement for the buyer's 50 shades of gray fantasies. Realtor Melissa Leonard stresses, however, that the basement can be converted back to a typical suburban basement. Neighbors are shocked to find out what's been going on in their hood, but, quote, I know it's a way of life for people, Leonard told Slate Magazine. Stories of the government in action. You think things are wild in the U.S. Congress? Well... You would be wrong. In Albania, Edi Paloka, an opposition lawmaker, was asked to leave the Parliament Hall on February 14th and suspended for 10 days after throwing ink at Socialist Prime Minister Edi Rama. It all started when Rama scolded a fellow lawmaker for making accusations of corruption against the leftist government, according to Xinhua. A statement from the center-right Democratic Party explained, The action of ink throwing is in a rejection of bullying exerted by the prime minister, which is witnessed by the public opinion. Apparently, Rama has repeatedly mocked Paloka during previous sessions of parliament. That's nothing. They're fistfights sometimes. Those are the good ones. The Weirdo American Community. A dispute over a box of Cheez-Its provoked a DeKalb County, Georgia man to do the unthinkable on February 12th. As Jeremy Lamar Wyatt, 32, his brother and 61-year-old mother argued over the salty snacks, Wyatt went outside, locked his family inside the home, poured gasoline on the front steps, and started a fire, according to WGCLTV. Wyatt's brother was able to lower the mother down from a second-story window and both escaped without injury. Wyatt, who had reportedly been enjoying some adult beverages with his Cheez-Its, was taken into custody at the scene and charged with arson and criminal damage to property. Why was that not put in with the McDonald's story? News that sounds like a joke, ladies and gentlemen. Hard to pick right now, isn't it? A Tucson... Oh, that's nice. University in Maryland, or Towson? Could be Towson. University in Maryland, an unidentified woman was reported wandering around campus just before Valentine's Day, showing co-eds a photo of her son and asking if they'd go like to go on a date with him. Awkward. Yeah, well, it says that in the thing. The woman, thought to be in her 50s, staked out the Cook Library and the Center for the Arts in hopes of securing a love connection for her son, reported the Baltimore Sun. Towson police are hoping to identify her, not so they can arrest her, but to ask her to stop. Our least competent criminals of the week, the moral of the story, if you're going to rob a bank in February, target Florida or Texas. Jackson McIndrott, 37, was making his getaway after robbing the Bangor Savings Bankville in Waterville, Maine on February 12th. He scrambled across four lanes of traffic and into a restaurant parking lot where he slipped on the ice and sprawled on the ground right in front of the Maine State Police Agent Special... Oh boy, Maine State Police Special Agent Glenn Lang, who was sitting in his parked car. Lang didn't know the bank had been robbed, but became suspicious when the money and the gun he had stashed in his jacket pocket spilled onto the parking lot, Police Chief Joseph Massey told the Morning Sentinel. The weapon turned out to be a BB gun. Lang tackled McEnrott and took him to custody as police were responding at the bank. McEnrott was charged with robbery and terrorizing. 
Meanwhile, on January 31st, Julian R. Mitchell, 20, tried to use a debit card from a wallet he had stolen at a Nashville, Tennessee bar, according to WZTV, but a fraud alert tipped off bar employees that the card had been lost or stolen, so they asked for photo ID. Mitchell fished out of the tennis driver's fished the Tennessee driver's license out of the wallet, which, according to the Davidson County Arrest Affidavit, made it plainly obvious that the photo was not him because of the difference in height. Mitchell, who strangely resembles a Ken doll with blonde hair, a red beard, and black eyebrows, was charged with identity theft. Officers found several of the cards belonging to the same victim in the wallet. Ken doll with blonde hair, red beard, and black eyebrows. What do Ken dolls look like these days? The continuing crisis. Passengers on a 12-hour Air France flight on February 18th became alarmed when a man seated in the bulkhead row boarded the plane, then removed his pants and socks, settling into his seat in just his boxers and a t-shirt. Sitting across the aisle from him, passengers Lizzie Thompson took photos and posted on Twitter throughout the flight, reported the Sun. Alerted the flight attendant, he offered to move me, but just shrugged when I suggested he ask the man to put his pants back on, she wrote. Thompson also wrote that six hours into the flight from Paris to Los Angeles, the scantily clad passenger got cold, so, quote, put on his puffy jacket. The man put his pants and socks back on after landing, much to Thompson's relief. Nothing bonds a group of passengers like a man half-naked in your section, Thompson wrote. And finally, the meth made me do it. In Seattle, Douglas Braden Smizer, 21, boarded a plane on February 13th on his way to Los Angeles and a drug rehab center in Malibu. But his behavior during the flight finally caused the pilot to land in Portland and have him removed from the plane. Smizer, from Bonnie Lake, Washington, would not stay in a seat, tried to sit in first class, and threw his backpack in the aisle. Passengers helped contain him until the plane could land safely. Smizer admitted that he had eaten meth before boarding, which made him suspicious and paranoid, reported KIRO-TV. He also claimed to have a gun. He was charged with second-degree disorderly conduct and menacing, along with a federal charge of interference with a flight crew. Ladies and gentlemen, that is going to do it for this week's episode of Electric Leftovers. I hope you enjoyed giving the show a listen. I sure did talk for a while, didn't I? 
and I hope you enjoyed the music and all that other stuff as well. I uh, want to just, of course, let y'all know that you can find all the stuff about Low Bias Gaming over at uh, lowbiasgaming.net, where you can find old episodes of the show, playlists, and all of the like there, especially the videos that we talk about when we talk about what's new at the website. Let's hit the website. Imagine that. And uh, you can contact the show through there as well. Uh, real quick as well on top of that. I say as well a lot sometimes, don't I? Sure I do. Uh, you can support the show. If you would like, we have a Patreon, and you can visit patreon.com slash Jason's Groove Machine if you would like to uh, kick a little money over into the old tip jar. It's very much appreciated, and it does help the show stay up and running because, uh, you know, it would be hard to do it without internet, and tips kind of help pay for internet. Anyway, thanks for listening. Have a great time. We'll see you next week. Brought to you by...